Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. As you know, before I started The Daily Stoke, I had another life. Before I wrote really any of my books, I had another life. I was in marketing, and I worked for a number of controversial companies and businesses and people, from American Apparel to Tucker Max. And, you know, if you read Trust Me, I'm Lying, which is my first book, then you contrast it with what we talk about here, what I talk about in Stillness is the Key, what I talk about in... Uh, in the obstacles away or he goes to the enemy, it can feel very different. Uh, and it was different. I, I actually, I say in trust me, I'm lying, you know, there's this word disintegrated, which means we think means falling apart, coming in pieces. But if you think about it more as disintegrated, what it means is not integrated. And so my journey to stoicism begins very early on, right? I think, uh, maybe 18, 19 years old before I had this marketing career, before I had you know, worked on any of these controversial campaigns and uh, did the stuff that I talk about in that book. And so how do I reconcile those two things? Well, the truth is for a long time, I didn't reconcile them because I kept them separate. They were not integrated. The philosophy that I was learning about and studying on fascinated by was very different than my actual professional life. As I left my media career, partly in publishing that book, I was able to, with time, integrate them and still a past that I reckon with and struggle with and have trouble explaining, but it also gives me a certain amount of empathy for people who had their own dark or confusing or seemingly contradictory chapters in their life. So um, it was actually through my speaking agency that I got connected with today's guest uh, many years ago um, because she had actually read The Obstacle is the Way. I'm, my guest is Megan Phelps Roper, who's family, her grandfather, was the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church. And she was a member of this well into her late 20s. And there's no way around the fact that this meant she participated in from like ta being a toddler on with the horrible and cruel campaigns of the Westboro Baptist Church, the protesting of military funerals, the, the homophobia, the basically media trolling, ironically, some of the stuff that I kind of talk about in Trust Me, I'm Lying, she, she was born into that tradition. That, that, was, that was her birthright. And, and it wasn't something that she was able to question for many, many years. That's how she uh, participated in it. And so um, it's not that I can relate because my experiences are so radically different, but I, I, I get the disintegration. How do you have a smart intelligent, kind person who could have been a party to and, and sort of unquestioningly observant of this horrendous doctrine and 
behavior. Um, it seems like it doesn't make sense, but it actually does make sense. And so um, we we got reconnected somewhat recently, and, and, and she was someone I definitely wanted to talk to. And I think there's a lot we can learn from in this episode. It was a wonderful conversation. I hope uh, no one rejects it out of hand because of the messenger. I do think this is a really good conversation. It's one I was very much looking forward to having. Um, and I, I think it touches, and we touch on this in the interview, into a lot of common themes that we're in today. You know, Most people are not in cults, but you can get wrapped up in antisocial destructive beliefs. You can get trapped in a bubble. You can be radicalized. Social media uh, can radicalize you. The irony for for Megan is that she actually ends up being de-radicalized. It's on Twitter that she starts to discover and learn things that are very different than what she grew up with. And this helps her uh, eventually sort of come to her senses. And And it, it took no small amount of courage to leave that church, to, as she says, to go out into the world populated by all the people that she defended and hurt. And 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 to, to sit with that, to sit with the shame, to sit with the fear, to sit with the loneliness, this is not an easy thing to do. And this is a great interview. Look, you can uh, you can go to her website at meganphelpsroper.com. You can watch her TED Talk, which is called uh, I Grew Up in the Westboro Baptist Church. Here's, where, here's why I left. Uh, it's got millions of views for a reason. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful talk, and, a, and it's both inspiring and uh, terrifying at the same time. She has a book that came out a few years ago about these experiences that's very much worth reading called Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. Anyways, I won't say anything more. Listen to this episode, uh, and uh, I think it, it, gives me, it gives me hope, as I said in the interview. It gives me hope. Uh, a lot of people are in a dark place intellectually, spiritually. They've been radicalized, not and not nearly to the degree that she was. And the fact that she was able to break free, get free, get her life back, and then use her experiences for good, it should inspire us. It should sober us, but it should also inspire us. So here's my interview with Megan Phelps Roper. You can check out her book, Unfollow, and uh, maybe you should follow her on social media as well. Talk soon. As I was preparing for this, I thought of a little poem by Philip Larkin that maybe you have heard, maybe you haven't, but uh, I'm going to read it to you. I know this is a little weird way to start a podcast, but I'm going <laughs> to read this to you. All right. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats who half the time were stoppy stern. And half at, at and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out early as you can. And then this is the one line that I don't agree with, but it concludes the poem. He says, "Get out early. Get out as early as you can, and don't have any kids yourself." It's really funny that you bring that up because actually, uh, my writing mentor and very good friend um, Eric McHenry, who like he gets like a a, a big you know, piece of the acknowledgments of my book. Um, he actually was the one who introduced me to that. And uh, it's it's very funny. And I think it's, I mean, it says something that's extremely obvious, but I think seems to be yeah, something that's missing so much from the public conversation. There's so much about, you know, cutting off the toxic people in your life and, 
and specifically like your parents, you're holding your parents to these, you know, incredibly high standards for, um, anyways, like I could go on and on about this, but, Please. but it's the recognition of, you know, they also come from somewhere. And, you know, when I think about what my mom comes from and, and how much worse it was, like people look at my upbringing and think, oh, that's super extreme. And in a lot of ways it was, but compared to what she went through, she, she saved me and my siblings from the, some of the worst of that. And she tried, like the thing I can say about my mother more than anything, both my parents, they gave it their all. You know, I'm the third of 11 children. And I think it's remarkable that I never felt like I was neglected or that I didn't get enough attention or anything like that. Like they spent so much time and energy and resources. Like there's no question in my mind, they did their absolute best. And I am so, so incredibly grateful for them and for the people that they are. So, so with that being said, how do you find yourself in uh, the situation that you found yourself? So let's, let's say people aren't super familiar. Walk us through the story then, because it sounds like you're describing an idyllic, normal childhood, but clearly, <laughs> clearly that was not the case. Right. Yes, correct. Um, so my grandfather um, was a preacher. He founded the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, he was the first pastor in the mid-1950s. And, and it's kind of the story of you know, a person who becomes more extreme over time. Um, part of that you know, ended up being really good. And by that, I'm referring to the fact that he became a civil rights pioneer in Kansas. Um, he went to law school and, and you know, he called Topeka, uh, you know, Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka. He arrived, <laughs> maybe I'm going back too far with this, um, but he arrived in Topeka the same day that the Brown versus Board case came down from the U.S. Supreme Court. And he took that as a sign from God that he should go to law school um, and, you know, effectuate civil rights in this Jim Crow town, as he said. And so that willingness to kind of stick his neck out and be, you know, super in your face and, you know, fighting this fight that requires the kind of moral courage and a kind of personality that's, that's you know, willing to alienate yourself from essentially everyone. Um, and that ended up being a really good thing. Um, ultimately, though, he he lost his license to practice law. He, he, he lost the, the license in state court and then, um, gave up his federal court license later. And, and in the, and it wasn't until I was writing my book that I realized that it would, it was just in the months after that, after he stopped practicing law, that this incident happened that sparked Westboro's protesting. And this of course is something that people will look at and see it as the, almost the exact opposite of the civil rights work, which was that, um, you know, we started protesting, uh, gay people, anybody, um, you know, it, so I, I, just for context, yeah, I was five when the, the protest actually started. Um, so my earliest memories are growing up on the picket line, you know, standing out there, uh, with signs that said these incredibly, um, hostile, controversial attacking things, things like gays are worthy of death. And pretty quickly the word gay became the word fag. Um, and, and the message morphed. So, so that right now, the, what the most famous Westboro slogan is God hates fags. We became the God hates fags people. Um, so all of my life, that was 
what we were known for. That was what we did our whole life. Uh, my whole life, sorry, was all of our lives were organized around um, preaching this message that we believed was essential for the world to hear. Um, my gramps would say that the world needs this message more than they need air to breathe or water to drink or food to eat. And yeah, so so it, how does a person get radicalized like that? How do you go from a civil rights pioneer to God hates fags? Like, is it is it a a, a transformative moment? Is it a long slide? Is it mental illness? Is it projection? Like, how does someone go from one extreme to the other? So what's so funny is that. I don't think, you know, Gramps definitely didn't see it as one extreme to another because for him, both of those positions came directly from the Bible. And so the, it's really, you know, fascinating in the months before I left Westboro, I was, you know, I was thinking about all of the things that I would lose, you know, cause as soon as you leave, you, you, um, are completely cut off from the church, other church members. Sure. Um, and it's almost entirely my extended family. It's like 70 people. My mom is one of 13 kids. It's almost my aunts, uncles, cousins. Um, you know, so by blood or marriage, I'm related to almost everybody in the church. And so I was copying our my dad kept uh many, many home movies. And I I started copying them. And they started when I was two years old. And one of the very earliest um videos is this almost a sermon that Gramps gave at, it was at a black church and it was a, but it was at a like public event, you know, where, you know, many of like state and local officials were speaking on, you know, against apartheid in South Africa. And, uh, you know, he was the fire and brimstone in his voice, you know, speaking against racism was, uh, absolutely the same fire and brimstone that I later, you know, heard him preach against, um, against gay people and against basically everybody, ultimately everyone outside of our church was a target. Everyone outside was not preaching, you know, the truth of God as he understood it. And so, so, I mean, and if you want specifics, like where, where from the Bible this comes from. So, you know, uh, when he would talk about, um, you know, against race, speak against racism, you know, it's God has made of one blood, all nations of men to dwell on the earth. And so we all says what uh, one law shall be to him that is homeborn and to the stranger that still, so, sorry, <laughs> one law shall be to him that is homeborn and to the stranger that sojourns among you. So equality under the law, um, was, was a, a principle absolutely that he got from the Bible and the same God that said that, um, you know, that there should be equality under the law said, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. And so that, that was the standard. And, the way that I was raised, it was to understand everything written in the Bible as this unquestionable, undeniable standard that we had to live by no matter what, you know, any modern human would say. Yeah, that must be, that must be strange to watch someone that you love and care about that you know to be capable of loving and caring things. Do something profoundly not loving and caring and the being cognitive dissonance is a very powerful force, I guess is what I'm saying. And it, it's very hard for us to, our mind, our mind works against us as far as seeing contradictions in, in that sense. So it must've been very disorienting, especially to 
be essentially born into it um, to to have seen what was happening. Yeah, it's really funny though because you know since I was so young, the the cognitive dissonance didn't come until later. I guess is what right. I'm saying. Like you know, having been born into it, this was the norm. Like I basically understood that the only people that I could trust uh, was were the people in the church. And you know, even though people are sometimes surprised to find out that we went to public school, that we had access to books and read widely. I was reading Stephen King books in like first grade right? Um, and and listening to popular music and watching movies um, and television. And so it wasn't that we were ever, you know, cut off from the rest of the world. It was just that from a very young age being, you know, essentially indoctrinated, right? It's you are taught with what lens to view everything. So before you ever have a question or a doubt yourself, you're taught like, okay, well, this is what people are going to say. This is what they're going to argue. Uh, you know, here's the chapter and verse from the Bible that shows why they're wrong. Memorize it. And so it's just it has the effect of inoculating you against these ideas before you've even encountered them yourself. And 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 honestly, the fact that they were able to, and I should also note that it wasn't just my grandfather who was a lawyer. It, he required his children and their spouses to also go to law school. So both of my parents are also attorneys. They're extremely smart, extremely well-educated, and extremely analytical. And so to have all of this information kind of to be marinating in it essentially from the time we were very young and you know reading the bible every day and going over these arguments and then standing on a picket line where we are constantly um you know being put in a position to defend them um when they tell you this is what people are going to say and then people say those exact things and here you have this answer and it makes perfectly logical sense you know it, it has the effect of you know it really does feel like this larger than life like this clearly must be the truth of god because it it all just follows and it like i said it wasn't until i was was much older that i realized that all of our beliefs you know they're they're all valid arguments you know from the like a traditional logic perspective but they stem from two premises um that i never allowed myself to question and those two premises were that the bible is the literal infallible word of god and number two was that Westboro had the only legitimate interpretation of it, the only one that that was consistent in all of its doctrines. And yeah, so- it, it, Although maybe a third one is, and this is always an interesting part to me about religion, that like- what other people do is any of your fucking business. <laughs> you know, like, like, like it, there is this weird element of all sort of belief systems where it's sort of not sufficient. And, and I, I mean, all belief systems, I don't even just mean religion, but it's sort of like what you believing a thing is not enough. And I guess this is where some cognitive dissonance comes in. It's you believing it is not enough. Other people also have to do it because almost to allow them to exist as they want to exist challenges the legitimacy of your beliefs. And I feel like so much of our societal conflict, certainly our you know, sort of religious con conflict and then religious sort of first secular conflict is this idea that like uh, the thing you're supposed to enforce your beliefs on other people. Yeah. And Westboro would, they, you know, they would quote the Bible verses that say that they absolutely should, that, you know, God says that it's your duty to judge, um, to judge righteous judgments. Um, and, 
And, but it is kind of funny, though, because... But also let he w- who is without sin, you know what I mean? Cast the first stone. Yes, exactly. Yes. That actually ended up being, uh, as you may know, <laughs> incredibly instrumental in my you know ultimate decision to leave the church. Um, but also just one you know random thought that I had when you were talking about religion in general, this was one of the things that I found, you know, honestly shocking when I was um, learning about Judaism, like that they don't evangelize, like they mm-hmm. don't try to persuade people to join. And, and in fact, you know, it's again, really hard. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But, but I mean, even like the people that, uh, you know, I was staying with this Orthodox Jewish family in Los Angeles, uh, Rabbi Yona Bookstein and his family. And, you know, I'm asking them a ton of questions, you know, in the, in the months shortly after I left Westboro. And they were saying like, yeah, in fact, like if you say you want to join, like they have to tell you no, like you have to ask three times before Mm -hmm. you can even start down this path. And I was just like, this is so contrary. (laughs) There's so much of Judaism that is so contrary to, to my understanding of what it meant to be a good person, but that really resonated with me. Um, anyway. Yeah, no, it's like you shouldn't want to be a, in a club that wants you as a member. Uh, Judaism is it doesn't actually want uh, want you. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know what I think is interesting about your story that I think has some relevance here is I know you don't refer to the Westboro Baptist Church as a cult, and and I think you have an interesting argument for it. But um, let's say that it's not. Let's say that it, it's sort of more of a sort of circular, self-contained sort of universe that strikes me as as being a problem we are struggling with as a society today on on both sides of the spectrum but then you know there's some certain certain issues that are sort of popping up where um it's not so much that it's a cult but it is operating under its own sort of destructive kind of antisocial logic that makes it impervious to facts or peaceful coexistence, uh, and and maybe is actively self-destructive. Now, someone might argue that that is a de- that is a definition of of a cult. But I, I'm just thinking, like I know a number of people for very different reasons who are sort of like militantly anti-vax, and it comes from this sort of community that they're in, where this has become kind of an issue of identity that makes it impossible to see for them to see not only what is in their sort of obvious self-interest, then what is obviously in line with the, the actual teachings of what they purport to believe and their sort of basic obligations to, uh, you know, their fellow human beings. I just think it's, it's, I think we should be, I guess what I'm saying is we should be careful sort of going like, oh, cults are these things that other people get mm-hmm. into, and we should think about where we get sucked into things because yes. it's very – it's much easier than people think. Absolutely. And I think you know sometimes people think that intelligence is something that can save you from those kind of thought patterns. And in fact, you know, I, I've read several, you know, articles. There's one that I remember from the New Yorker that was basically saying that like intelligence is actually something intelligent people are more likely to join cults because they, because of that very reason. Like they think that they're too smart to be taken in by these cognitive flaws that basically all humans are subject to. Um, and and so like the they, like they know they're smart, and so they think they can't be taken in. And you know, of course, my entire family is a. You know, yeah. and to my mind, a, a huge argument. Um, 
you know, against or, or a bunch of evidence against that, um, against that yeah, idea. Yeah, it's like the, the I, I've found on at least two occasions in my life, I sort of got very absorbed in, in what you might call a cult of personality, where it's sort of, like you said, where, where here's this person, they're very charismatic, they're very, uh, they have a somewhat antagonistic relationship to the rest of society or they're transgressive or disruptive in some way. They engender a lot of criticism and that can be very seductive and attractive. And then the feedback loop that you're talking about, which is like, so let's say you have some natural affinity or some connection that draws you to this person. You hear their universe, their explanation of the universe of the world. You're, you're, I don't want to say complicit, but you're engaged in it in some way. And then it's precisely because you are attacked by it for it or forced to defend it. This is where you get really sucked in because- You're constantly uh, looking at the evidence that supports your position. It's, it's confirmation yes. bias, right? Yes. And motivated yes. reasoning. And be, especially when you have tied your identity to it, like when you've gone far enough down the path that your identity is tied to the beliefs themselves, these specific beliefs, um, that- that it makes it even harder to back away from because then you've, you know, the motivator, motivated reasoning, right? That yes. you, you're trying to defend the ideas because they feel like an extension of yourself. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now. Like, for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoke and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I think it's even more than that. Let's say like sort of COVID deniers and then anti-vax people. Now that now that it's starting to really get serious again, to suddenly admit like, oh, the vaccines are not bad or, oh, COVID is real. Um, oh, you know, uh, it is dangerous. Like, let's say you lost someone or let's say you, you look at the evidence and you're like, oh, crap. You have to admit that you were a shitty person. 
right? You have like the yeah to to change your. I think we we wonder why people can't change their mind. Mm-hmm. It's hard to change your mind when changing your mind is an implicit condemnation of yourself. So I got to imagine, for instance, you start to come to terms, wrestle with the the fallibility of the teaching you grow up with. The the real hurdle is not like you know, is the evidence 5149, you know, where does the evidence come down that it's right or wrong? It's, you have to look in the mirror and, and go like, wait, I was, I was holding up a God hates fags sign, mm-hmm. you know, and, and yeah. that, that's all, like to yeah. wrestle with the awfulness, not just of like the wrongness, the incorrectness of it, mm-hmm. but the consequences that that had on other people, like the the pain that was caused. That's why it's so hard for people to change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. I I mean, I've I've talked about this a lot, this this moment where I was, um, it's kind of the epiphany moment, you know, painting in a friend's basement with my sister and we're, you know, our backs are to each other. We're painting opposite walls and I'm kind of going through all of these, you know, all of this evidence essentially in my mind, all of the arguments that had been made. And they were, it was one thing after another that I had come to recognize as wrong. And they start out as relatively, you know, small points of doctrine and they grow and grow and grow until there's so many of them that finally it, it wasn't, it literally wasn't until that moment that it finally occurred to me that we might be fundamentally wrong. Um, and, and of course, it's this massive, massive paradigm shift that happens so quickly. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny. Like, I randomly thought of this um, Weird Al song <laughs> where, uh, like, everything you know is wrong, black is white, up is down, and short is long, and everything you thought was just so important doesn't matter. And so, of course, like, th- these kind of dominoes are falling in my mind as to, like, what this means. And the magnitude of it, it was just so enormous. Like it felt like I was choking. Like I had no, you know, and I, of course I'm just immediately like breaking down, you know, my, I'm like, like weeping uncontrollably trying to be as quiet as possible as this music's playing so that my sister doesn't notice like that the whole world has just absolutely fallen apart. And part of that of course is like, I've spent my entire life here among these people believing that what we were doing was the most important thing in the world, that it was not just, you know, acceptable, but it was good and righteous and the only hope for other people. You know, we, we really believed as crazy as this is, I think for a lot of people to believe, but we really believed that what we were doing was the definition of loving our neighbor, right? That we were warning them of the consequences of their sins. Like this is the only way they'll ever know that they have to change their ways and and come to God or else face this eternal torment in hell. And, you know, coming to this realization that like I had spent all of this time, I had essentially wasted my life and I had spent it doing these things that had hurt and tormented so many other people. And I had done it with a kind of zeal that if it had been in the service of something, you know, something like what my grandfather had done, the civil rights work, um, that would be one thing. But to realize that I had gone so far in the wrong direction and it just felt like there was no hope, you know, like how is, so now we're wrong. And the consequences of this are, I'm going to have to walk away from these people and lose everyone that I love and everything that's ever meant anything to me. 
and I'm going to have to go out into a world that I've spent my entire life antagonizing and, you know, be among people who, who have no reason at all to give me a second chance. And it just felt like, you know, everything was lost. Yeah. I mean, it sounds terrifying. How, how do you, did you feel like sort of guilt? Like how, how do you deal with just sort of looking in the mirror at that point? Yeah. I mean, at that, in that moment, I think guilt isn't, I don't know if that's quite the right word. Shame, intense sure. shame, intense shame. Um, regret, I think is a, is a really good word. Like I, I, how, like, I, and I kept searching, I was looking for something like where along the way could I have seen this earlier? How, how could I have come to a better place than the one that I'm, I've arrived at now? What should I have done differently? And, you know, I, I kind of write about this in my book too, this, the, and this, this became a question for me for a while in the months after I left, like, you know, at, at what point, you know, at what point did this become my responsibility? Right. So mm-hmm. I'm a child and my parents are taking me out on the picket line and they're teaching me all of these things. And so I'm five. Is it my fault then? I'm 12. Right. Is it my fault then? I'm 18. And I had, you know, after I left, I, I had some conversation with, with people on Twitter about this. Like, you know, somebody was like, as soon as you turned 18, it was your fault. And I'm like, I mean, I, I, I get the argument, but also like, it's not like you turn 18 and you suddenly forget everything that you've learned in your life. And, and then I ultimately came to, I, it's not that I was looking for a way out of the responsibility. And I just was trying to understand what had happened. And, you know, that poem that you quoted at the beginning, the answer I, th- I, I kind of came to, I guess, was like, there's all kinds of things that lead people in bad directions. And I think it's much less about assigning blame to people, or it should be much less about assigning blame, and more about how and what can we do to help people push people, prod people, nudge people in a better direction. Um, and so that's kind of what, like, I'm happy to, and I, and I, I do, and I, I never, I was going to say, take the blame. Like I'm, yeah. I, I never argue that I'm, that I'm not responsible. Um, but I, I also, when I talk to people, so my family, for instance, I still reach out to them and still try to make arguments that I, you know, considering their perspectives and their view on the world, I think even, you know, believing what they believe, I still think there are many arguments to be made, you know, from the Bible that, that what they're doing is wrong. Um, but I, I'm appealing to values that they already have. It's less about blaming them or being angry at them, you know, for instance, for, for cutting me off and the, you know, intense pain that comes from the, what, what they're doing, um, with respect to the world and with respect to me. But it's, I, I just don't think of it in those terms. I don't think sure. that, I don't think it helps. I don't, and I, I guess in this, you know, your work has actually been, you know, really helpful. Um, yeah. How, I, how did you end up finding that? I'm curious. Um, I was at an event um, and I, I met this guy, he was sitting at my table named uh, Brian Levinson. Um, and he was just super passionate about it. He had brought me um, a copy of your book, The Obstacle is the Way. Um and I brought it home and I actually ended up listening to the audiobook. Um, and then I and then I listened to Ego is the Enemy um not long after that. 
Um, so I think it was like five or six years ago, I think. Um, yeah. And I just have really loved a lot of the, a lot of what I see from you. I mean, it's really funny. Cause like I, I obviously knew you had a podcast because you asked me to be on it, <laughs> but I, I, I mostly have not heard you here. I mostly, yeah. um, Instagram and your daily stoic email and your books and, um, and, and yeah, like it's just, there's, there's so much in it that resonates with me. Um, and that has made, I think my life easier, more kind of full of grace if that makes sense. Like the acceptance of the way that things are, like not resisting and fighting. Um, and, and you know, I know all of your things about anger, um, which I, I had these experiences, like, I don't know, I think probably 10 years ago when I was still at the church, where I realized that every time I got really angry, I hurt myself accidentally. <laughs> like I'd go on a run and like fall, like I fell in this giant hole that was covered with, I was running on the beach and this, I don't know, wave came up and made a giant hole right in front of me and I fell into it. And anyway, just like stupid things like that. And I kind of started to like resist or trying to like reform how I thought about, you know, things instead of getting so angry. And uh, between you and Sam Harris, I feel like I'm uh, much, much better about that now. <laughs> no, it's funny because we have a mutual connection in in David Abitable, uh and and I remember reaching out and meeting him when I was at American Apparel, which is sort of one of the things I was alluding to earlier, where you know you think you're working for this company or working on this thing that is good, that's a positive force for the world, and you you realize that it's complicated. You realize like, hey, this is part of my job, you know, whatever. And then sort of that he and I connected because he was friends with Doug Charney, who was the CEO of the company, who uh, was a was a, a man who made all sorts of you know sort of ethically forward thinking decisions as he built this company, but also, you know, had this uh, sort of Harvey Weinstein side to him that that sort of came to light over time. But I say that, you know, it came to light over time. Like I like like lots of people didn't tell me that at the time, right? That mm -hmm. that it wasn't sort of very public. But you find yourself for a lot of different reasons, sort of caught up in something and uh it's it's uh like i i wrote ego is the enemy as i as american apparel was imploding but i was also wrestling with you know sort of what why the fuck was i even here like involved <laughs> in it imploding how did i how did i get there mm -hmm. uh it was a sort of a surreal strange experience where you you sort of you think you're part of something good, as mm -hmm. you were saying, yeah. and then you step away from it and you're like, not only was it not good, it right. was the opposite of good. And right. I'm at best, uh, you know, didn't do anything to stop it. And at worst, complicit in it. And at what point, you know, like, mm -hmm. same thing. It's like, yeah. started there when I was 21 years old. Was I, you know, was I uh, complicit for not stopping a person two times my age, you know, out of this power and was hiding mm -hmm. things. And at what point, like, uh, I, I think I saw someone who they were talking about Harvey Weinstein. They were like, I didn't know everything, but I mm -hmm. knew enough. Right. Yeah, and right. what is that point where you become culpable or yeah. uh, tied up in mm -hmm. it? And that that is a very difficult thing to wrestle with as it's happening, and then it becomes weirdly even harder as distance passes because you're. It almost feels like it was a different person. 
Like you were yeah. a different person. Yeah, exactly. And I, I actually don't think that's a, you know, it's like a ship of Theseus thing, right? <laughs> like yeah. your cells regenerate every seven years. Like how long, <laughs> how long until you're completely sure. different? Um, but but yeah, absolutely, you're right. This is, and this is why it it does. When I look back, like it is such a strange, um, it's such a strange feeling because you know I can I gave so many interviews. There's so many videos of me protesting and like making these arguments, and it's such a strange feeling because I I can I can try when I think back, like remember being that person and when those things made perfect sense. And at the same time, I know all the reasons why I don't believe those things now, and it's almost like like watching myself be forced, you know, to say things that I don't believe. And it, it feels, it, it's, a, it's a very strange feeling. I think this is just generally like, you know, living on the internet for everybody. In some yeah. sense, everybody's in this position now where it's the same Twitter feed. Like you're going back 10 years, but it's right. the same Twitter feed. Like clearly you're the same person. You've been running it this whole time, but it's not obvious. I was just talking to a friend about this. Like it's not obvious, you know, these changes that take place over time. And, you know, th and this is why it seems like it, it's such a, it's such a, like, I understand, you know, there's, again, there's this, there's this um, kind of always this talk about culture of accountability, like holding people accountable. Um, and I, I understand that, but it seems like so much of the time these days, it's less about accountability and more about this this kind of will to punish. Like, in other words, you're not holding people accountable because you're trying to help them change. Like if it's somebody who's already changed, right? It's, it's you, but it's like, we, we still need to find a way to, to punish people somehow. And there's yeah. also not an obvious way for people to, you know, to be forgiven or, or to have some kind of reconciliation. So much of the, or rather so many of the sins that people seem to be getting in trouble for are, um, are things that like they're not criminal, and if it were criminal, there's clearly a system. Like this is what you do: you go through the system, and and if you you know you pay the fine or you go to jail for a certain period of time, and then you come through and you've paid your debt to society. And now, right now, we we are really struggling with the fact that 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 system is kind of gone. And I like I can't tell you how often I have thought just how lucky. I mean, that I had that realization when I did, because I, I feel like, you know, I left at the end of, toward the end of 2012. I think if I had left even a year and a half or two years later, the, the culture changed so fast. You know, at the end of 2012, Twitter was still more like old Twitter. You know, John yeah. Ronson talks about like old Twitter was like very confessional and like people, you know, talking about these things that they struggle with. And does anybody else feel the same way? And, you know, people are, so it's this very like, kind of affirming, understanding place. And then it became this, this other thing um, that we see okay. now. May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible 
incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80. When you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic, to match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash stoic, code SPACE80. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. You could say, right, the obstacle is the way I've always been a student of failure, of things that go wrong. It's so easy to celebrate things going right, but we can learn a lot from when it doesn't go right. Each week, David Duchovny chats with guests like Ben Stiller and Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure. Fail better together. Fail better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. There's that expression, hurt people, hurt people. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of think it, when I look back at American Apparel, again, it's sort of not not quite at the level of what we're talking about with Westboro Baptist or mm-hmm. some other stuff, but I, I sort of also see it as like, okay, so there's this sort of toxic force, this person who was clearly broken in some profound way, who sort of, whose energy and dysfunction sort of sucks, you know, or attracts people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you get in it. And then there's also this element of like, everyone comes to their sort of awakening at different points, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, what can often happen is the ship starts sinking, right? It's sort of like the Titanic where, you know, there's people who are getting off, getting on the lightboats, getting free. And but then as the ship's going under, it can also suck people down with it. And, and so I, same thing, I feel gratitude for, you know, getting free because I see other people, and I think we're, we're also seeing this with Trump, right? Where we're seeing that sort of people, you know, January 6th was this kind of like wake up call, right? We're like, holy shit, we're not, mm-hmm. we're, we're playing with, with real stuff here, right? Like this, mm-hmm. this isn't just things happening on the internet. This is more than just owning the libs or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So you had this, you can even see it in some of the, the people's comments where there was this m- flash of truth and awareness and awakening. And then if you don't manage to get free in time or you stall, it's like uh, Lot's wife in the Bible. Right. Um, if you stop and you look back, um, you can get drawn, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and so I think, it's been interesting to watch people, like I feel like, so I got out in like 2014. This is right when the obstacles of the way was coming. I got out. Um, basically I was, and, and it was a complicated thing. I actually talk about it a little bit in the new book, but I get out and a couple, uh, like other people I knew stayed for like a few more months. And those people remain sort of sucked into the universe to that, to this day, because by not getting out, they have this sort of flash of recognition. You you get, you have an epiphany like you did, but if you don't act on it, if you don't move quickly, mm-hmm. if you hesitate, then all of a sudden, all those for, all those cognitive forces that we're talking about, you know, sort of suck you in. It's it's almost impossible mm-hmm. to get out a second time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like it's, you waver, mm-hmm. and then ah, yeah. no, it's you're not going to break. Yeah, it's really. It, 
you know, it's so strange though, when you think about like the, the specific, you know, cause I think about the fact that, you know, so many of the people in Westboro, like, again, they're, they're all like, you know, very intelligent. And, you know, when people, you know, act like I'm special somehow. And I just think like just the set of circumstances, you know, that fell out the way that they did to me. Like the only thing that separates me from the current members of Westboro are, is luck essentially. Like I I was so lucky to have these experiences on Twitter of all places that, that, you know, exposed me to different ways of thinking in a way that I could actually hear them. You're one of the only people I know that was de-radicalized by social media. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, but I mean, it, that's, I, I think that's the power of of real conversation. And it's, this, it was possible on Twitter in a way that is, I think, much less likely now. Um, and that's so sad to me. I think that, like, a lot is lost in the current discourse, the way that we talk about each other. And it's so funny because you were making that comparison earlier to, you know, between essentially our kind of political tribes now, you know, to cults like, you know, people like Westboro members. And like, I made that, you know, exact comparison in my TED talk in, in 2017. And it was, you know, it was right out, I was writing it right after the 2016 election and I gave it right after, you know, Trump took office. And I remember feeling like, oh my God, like, I don't, I don't know if people are going to let me make this comparison, you know, this kind of very black and white us versus them thinking, you know, the inability to, to acknowledge when your side gets something wrong or when the other side gets something right. Like the most important thing is, is defending and advocating for, you know, your team. And, you know, I, I was really kind of anxious about doing that, but I, for some reason at, at that point, I think people were still willing you know, to, to hear that. And I, I, I have heard from so many people, including, you know, incredibly people who were, you know, massive targets of Westboro. And I mean that in like real deep personal sure. ways. Um, and that was really shocking to me that, that people were, were willing to hear that. And, you know, right before we started recording, you mentioned the Amy Cooper piece that I just published today. And, uh, like, I am, I mean, I feel better now. It's actually really, really easy talking to you. Uh, but like before we got on, like all morning kind of, I've just been feeling sick about, you know, cause again, in this piece, it's essentially identifying all the ways that, you know, what's happening in public discourse. It feels very Westboroian and, and it brings me back and, and that, that will to punish, you know, that's, that's absolutely part of it. There, there are so many different aspects to it. And, you know, I, it's really painful to think about and not just because of, you know, kind of the, the triggering, you know, taking me back to these like very emotional, like, you know, traumatic moments, but, but also just the fact of like, you know, I could leave Westboro, right. I could walk away from this, you know, relatively small group of people, you know, and of course it will, those experiences will affect me and frame my thinking and inform my perspective for the rest of my life. But I could walk away from that and try to rebuild. But this problem, like it's not just like a fringe group. It's it feels like so much of society and so many of our institutions, and yeah, it's it's a really it's a, it's a scary place to be. So talk to me about that because it's something I, I actually right before we got on, um, uh, someone from the social media team uh, for Daily Stoic published this piece I wrote in the Daily News uh, last week about sort of. Uh, 
uh, about vaccines, I was there's this wonderful quote from Marcus Aurelius where he talks about it, what you said during the Antonine Plague. He said there's sort of two types of plagues. He's like, there's the one that destroys your character and there's the one that destroys your body. And he was basically talking about what we've seen over COVID where, um, you know, this sort of uh, thing that should be unifying and should get everyone on the same page has sort of uh, motivated a certain percentage of the population to become sort of completely unhinged and, uh, uh, let's just say, monstrous, uh, monstrously indifferent, right? Um, and and what's fascinating to me, or, or what I struggle with, the same, I'm sure you're seeing the response on the post. You wrote this article. People can agree or disagree with it, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but it, it clearly came from a place of sort of understanding and uh, it was heartfelt, your, your, your piece. Um, but then you get this sort of vehemence, right? This, mm-hmm. this uh, intense wave of like irrational anger and probably not unlike what people felt uh, being on the other side of Westboro Baptist protests. But mm-hmm. um, I really struggle with maintaining an equilibrium in the face of, it's not so much the onslaught of it, because it's not like getting to me, I'm pretty protected, but it's like uh, knowing that knowing that those people exist and that they are intensely more motivated than good people is something that's hard it's it weighs on me does that make sense what i'm saying or am i just rambling Um, i mean a a bit can you just say a little bit more but i'm I'm just i'm trying to so 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 uh so this this piece this, this piece goes up about how uh we have this obligation to each other that vaccines are not just about your own health but about the the idea right. of public health, mm-hmm. um, the vulnerable. And like, it's not like, hey, I disagree, <laughs> right? Yes, uh, because yes, that can't yes. be, it can't be that. It has to right. be not only uh, our, uh, not only a defense of what someone is doing, which is at almost medically indefensible, but like mm-hmm. aggressively nasty and cruel and vicious. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, hey, uh, I don't, I don't support gay marriage. It's like God hates facts, right? Like yes, the, yes, the yes, difference yes. between those two. Yes. I, I have trouble even just sitting with the fact that like, oh, like 10, 20, 15%. I don't know what the the percentage of the audience is that has been broken in the brain or infected at this level. It, it's hard for me to deal with that. Yeah. It, it's, I think, I think my, I think my Westboro experience makes me like it's it's much or maybe it's just much easier for me to see like i basically again knowing where i come from like i basically it's very hard for me not to like intuitively like want to understand where people are coming from sure and considering their environment and their life experiences like why they would come to the position that they've come to and so like even though I intensely disagree with people sometimes and think that what they're doing is incredibly wrong and destructive to other people and to themselves. Um, Like it's very difficult for me to be angry or upset about it. Like I'm basically always trying to like think about, this is kind of what my Ted talk was about too, right? It's, it's, and it's just because that was what worked with me, like on me, I should say, like by these people. Like when I, it still feels like a miracle that I am not still 
you know, a member of Westwood Baptist Church standing on, you know, a picket line somewhere in Kansas. And like that's or somewhere across the country. Like it's it blows my mind when I think about who I was in that moment. And it just seems like this, you know, kind of vast um canyon between Yeah, I think what makes me sad about it, it's not that it exists, it's Mm -hmm. that it doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? That it exists right with real consequences. The vaccines again being a great such a vivid example of this where, you know, it's like it's very hard to take you know, just sort of an abstract political belief and tie it to sort of actual real world consequences in the mm-hmm. way that something like vaccine denial or misinformation right. doesn't just affect you. Not right. first off, your individual choice obviously has, but then to infect, to, to not just be like, let's say hesitant, mm-hmm. but to be vehemently infecting other people. Right. Uh, but it's because they a, really believe it's dangerous. Right. Right. right? And so it's like, right. so it's so funny. Cause again, like I, I can't get, I got to stop saying like, it's so funny. <laughs> I feel like I feel like. Right. Cause it's, that's the hard part is that it's not funny at all. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, yeah. Yes. But I, what I mean is like, like strange or interesting. Like yes. when I like hear those things, you know, like they, they really believe this. So my, again, coming from where I come from, which was, you know, the tendency to judge and condemn. Like, that's what I meant, you know, in that piece. Like, I come from this culture of, you know, public judgment and condemnation. Like, that was that was our, that, that was what we did, right? That was like our whole purpose. Like, we weren't sure. actually trying to convince people. We were just telling them they were wrong. And after that, it was up to them, you know, or more specifically, it was up to God, whether he was going to change their minds or or keep them in these sins or sure. you know bad thinking or whatever. And so so now I resist like it, again it's almost like I'm constitutionally incapable. You know there's I I love by the way how how ready you are to quote things all the time like a just vast number of like writers and books and things. It's really amazing. Um but like one of uh, the epigraph of my book is this line from the Great Gatsby, um, and I, I remember reading it at Westrow and actually kind of having this like faint sense of like this feels transgressive <laughs> to be loving this quote and identifying so strongly with this quote. And the quote was, "Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope," and like that just immediately rang um, rang true to me. Like it's the idea, it's the willingness to see other people as being on a journey, right? And like they're they won't they don't have to be forever who they are in this moment. And like, what can I do to like help this person, you know, be more willing to go down this one path versus you know another that I that I believe is wrong. And yeah, but like, I think about I think yeah. about the Great Gatsby, and he you know he talks about how they're they're careless people, and they smash things up, and then retreat mm-hmm. back into whatever you know sort of fantasy world they live. in. I think that's what I struggle with on this stuff, where it's like mm-hmm. this isn't a game, right? And right. I think that that's. But did you pr- see? Think, by the way, I, I so I was, we were actually just yeah. looking at this the other day. Um, so like these tweets from earlier on, so earlier last year in the pandemic, and then also like there was one last July from you know, Joy, Joy Reid basically saying like, oh, like they're rushing the vaccines and we can't trust these things. Um, and so it was liberals kind of, you know, yeah, under, sure. and, and so it's, it's, it, what I'm saying is like, it's, it's not a problem of, and, and you've said this too, it's not a problem of one side or the other. It's, it's just a very human problem. And, and like I, after spending so long 
on the judgment condemnation side. Like this is what I mean when I feel like I, I can't help but like I'm just basically always thinking of what is the answer? Like what is the solution? Sure. What do we do from this? And it's so hard as an individual in this country, right? Like we don't have, you know, you and I don't have like institutional power. We have, right. you know, our platforms, which, you know, yours is obviously vastly larger than mine, but it's it's like all we have is our voice and trying to um trying to, you know, and and it's it it sucks. It's really hard uh sometimes to to not feel not succumb to the kind of hopelessness that seems to pervade, you know, our our our, our discourse now. Um Yeah, I think I think that's one thing that is hopeful about your story. And you know, Mark Marin talks about how basically like just a certain percentage of the population has just been brain fucked, right? And it's it's largely older people, but like it it definitely skews across the spectrum politically, socially, but there, there's just people who've been sort of radicalized. Like, are there people on, on, on all sides that have been radicalized in one way or another? Yes, sure. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, right. Of course. Some worse than others, for sure. One, one attempted to overthrow the, a democratic election and hang the vice president, you know, one, although again, both sides of it, as far as the vaccines, but, you know, one side is sort of uh, keeping currently yes absolutely one 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 group of people and again there could be overlaps or not overlaps but then there's it's probably more like the horseshoe theory of like extremes on both ends there's mm -hmm. a percentage of the population that's holding the entire world hostage as far as keeping us mired in this pandemic mm -hmm. um it, it's it's uh it's really tough to it's, yeah, it's just it's, it's just, just a tough. tough situation. Yeah, yeah, no and question. and I think what's hopeful about your story is that like it is possible to get unfucked in the brain. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> perhaps not at scale, but yes. at least there's some hope for individuals. And I I I write about this in my next book too, where there's this scene where one of the people who beat John Lewis uh, on the Freedom Ride, so he like assaulted him for trying to sit in this waiting room uh, in. Memphis, I, I forget where it was, maybe mm -hmm. Alabama, but like not just assaulted him, but like beat him nearly to death. You know, 30, 40 years later, you know, like reaches out and tries to apologize and, and they meet each other. And it's this, mag, you know, mm -hmm. majestic moment of of both vulnerability and uh, reconciliation, you know, regret, but then also, yeah, yeah. forgiveness and self-control mm -hmm. and hope, you know, like it can happen on the individual level. I think the the scary thing what social media has done is you know how many people are in the Westboro Baptist Church versus how many people have been radicalized politically through social media on all sorts of extremist movements whether it's the white nationalist extreme movement or you know some of these sort of far left wing groups like there's definitely mm -hmm. a lot but how yeah. do you de-radicalize millions of people who have been radicalized for different yeah. reasons in different yeah. ways. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I want to talk about, a, I mean, several things come to mind. So first, do you know the story of um, Derek Black? No, I might. It sounds uh, familiar. Yeah. So he's the son of Don Black who started this, um, you know, essentially a home for white nationalists on the internet, Stormfront. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I read this. Yes. Right. There was a and big Washington Post piece about mm -hmm. it. The white flight of Derek Black. It was an yeah. amazing story. And so much of it like paralleled my story, like in really eerie ways, actually. Um, but 
so he and I are friends now. We talk about this all the time. And, and, um, so I, I guess part of the point here and, and I'll keep, I'll keep making it, but part of, part of this point is that I, my story is not unique, right? Like Derek is an example there. Have you heard of, um, Daryl Davis? No. He is a um, black musician. There's a um, there's a documentary on Netflix um, uh, about th- about this. What I'm about to tell you, it's this insane thing where he has personally convinced some like 200 members of the KKK to. Oh leave yes, the okay, I know this one too. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, like, you know, I think people think that stories like these are like just some kind of magic. Like they just you know, happen, you know, under some, you know, mysterious set of circumstances. And I don't think that's true. And I'm going to reference my TED talk again, sorry. But the whole point, like, you know, the the whole reason I gave that talk was to talk about the second half, essentially. It's the, it's how to talk to people we disagree with. And then in this case, you know, it's one of those places where the natural human instincts tend to lead us to uh, sucky places. So it's the judging and condemning. It's the attempts to shame people into, um, into, you know, being on what we believe is the right side. Um, there's this, um, I didn't, I I heard about this after I left. Um, I became intensely interested in, um, like psychology and, and how all of this works. Um, and like kind of the forces that kept me there versus the ones that eventually allowed me to leave. And one of these forces is this, uh, this tendency toward complementary behavior, which is that like we, our tendency to mirror one another, right? So when we see, believe that people are attacking us and they're, they're doing wrong, you know, our tendency is to, you know, be defensive. Um, and it works the other way when people are kind to us, we want, we tend to want to be, you know, kind in return. Um, but non-complementary behavior like it's incredibly difficult, um, but it's also really powerful because it means that one side has can have enormous influence on the other, right? So when somebody is being horrible to you, being kind back to them is not easy. It requ- it requires a kind of intentionality and a presence of mind, and it's exactly the kind of stuff that you all the things that you talk about the self control, the you know not reacting but intentionally responding. And being aware of how you're being perceived, it's a willingness to set aside your own ego and not have it be about how this person is offending you and making you feel, um, but really about accomplishing this thing that you want to happen, which is you don't want this person to be horrible. So instead of sh- trying to shame people, especially you know across ideological divides, sorry, I'm going to do a, a small tangent here yeah. because this is another one of those concepts that was absolutely mind-blowing to me. So I was talking to this anthropologist a few years ago and she was distinguishing guilt and shame for me, like in, in like whatever her official understanding. And shame she defined as uh, when we know that we have violated the norms of our community. And so it's it goes back to also what you were saying earlier about, you know, when people when people are, you know, coming after you for something that you believe you're doing right, it tends to push you even deeper into this, right? Because, okay, I'm going to, uh, I might be getting a little bit lost here. When somebody from the other side comes after you, you know, you already believe that they're wrong. So sure. the fact that they think that you're wrong, and I experienced this intensely at Westboro, like my gramps would say, this is a badge of honor, that these people are coming after us. They're sure. evil. Of course they're coming after us because we're good. And so that attempt to shame people across the aisle, it, it has the opposite effect or it tends to have the opposite effect. 
unless unless you are kind of attaching something and uh, another um another scientist was telling me this the other day she called it moral reframing right so it's trying to um instead of instead of trying to change their minds about something you are appealing to uh, values that they already, you're not trying to change their values. You're appealing to values they already have and using that to try to persuade people and change their minds. So backing up again to, uh, shame, not being effective. It's, it is what people did with me, right? It's this kind of very intentional recognizing that I am a human being with a lifetime of experiences that led me to this moment and, and their willingness, like David, you know, you mentioned David Abbott Ball. Like he he was the one who presented that very first argument. Um, that it was the first direct contradiction in Westboro's internal contradiction in Westboro's doctrines. And I honestly don't know I would ever or could ever have left without that without that understanding. The irony is that there's also a, a biblical basis for that as well, right? Romans twelve twenty is like, if your enemy is hungry, feed him; thirsty, mm-hmm. give him something to drink. And for this, you you will dump uh, burning coals of shame on his head. So it's a different <laughs> kind of shame, right? Yes, yes. But but it, it's it's by mirroring the yes. exact opposite of the behavior, and it is extraordinarily hard to do, especially. Mm-hmm. When and and I'm saying this as a person who's guilty of it all the time, when at, the person is doing something mm-hmm. monstrous or insensitive or immature or irresponsible, right. and I think that's where we really struggle. Where it's like, right? Yeah. yeah, it's like you know, your kid does something wrong, and you want to you you realize that by reacting, you're actually reinforcing the exact behavior that you're trying to stop. Yes, exactly. And you, I mean, you you talk a lot about you know, humility, right. In, in your work, right. How, you know, smart people are humble. And, and part of that, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, but it's, it's partly the recognition, I think, or, or, and, and, or maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe it's not exactly, it's epistemological humility, right. This, this became a thing, you know, huge, 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 huge in, in reframing how I think about myself and other people. Um, but, but it's it's for me it's the recognition that if i were that person i would be doing this thing if i was this person if i had their dna if i had had their exact life experiences well i would in fact be this person um you know i would be that person and so and so it's there's just a kind of grace i think that comes from that 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 quote i mentioned from gatsby earlier like reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope that is you know this concept of grace, right? It's, it's, um, by not issuing the judgment and by instead like seeing this as someone who can change and also someone that whose change you can contribute to. Like, again, this is where the, like the hopelessness, um, that we see right now is, is so dangerous because if it really is hopeless, well, then I can treat this person however I want, right? However I feel like. Sure. It's not about, you know, making things better. It's it's just about like, well, well, they're just wrong. It's it's again, it's a very Westbrolian like view. It's these people are wrong. And so therefore it's justified for us to go and protest their funerals because really our message is more important than this human being standing in front of us. Like for us to get this message across to them means far more in the end 
you know, if they're going to go to hell, well, a little pain now will save, you know, a lot of pain later. So like, there's so many ways that you can reframe. And this, this is, you know, how I felt watching what happened to Amy Cooper last year. Well, when you attribute the absolute worst motives to this person, well, then tearing her life apart is perfectly justified. Like the fact that she is a essentially, I mean, if you listen to the, I don't know if you've had, you probably not had a chance to listen to the, um, the podcast, or, or maybe you're an, uninterested in hearing from Amy Cooper. Like I think maybe a lot of people are, you know, she, it's really heartbreaking um, listening to what happened to her and whether you believe that she was right or wrong to have, you know, called the police in that moment, whether you believe that her fear was justified, whether you think that, you know, her, you know, she says she was just essentially describing him, thinking about how she was going to describe him to the cops when she mentioned his race and that she only repeated herself, you know, because, uh, because the, there was a bad cell connection. So the operator couldn't hear her. She wasn't trying to emphasize his race. She was just trying to get out of the situation, whether you believe any of that or not. I think that the punishment that was meted out to her, this essentially, you know, ending her life as she knew it is, is a really sad and, and horrible thing, especially knowing that it was done without all of like, with so many of the facts buried and in some cases intentionally buried. Um, When I watch those videos, one of the things that I sort of try to remind myself, even you know, and I, from what I remember from the story, I won't—I wouldn't say there's a pattern, but that I remember this wasn't a first offense, if I remember correctly. But, but, but what I what I saw in that video was a disturbed person, right? So I didn't know exactly why she was disturbed, right? It could be for the reasons you're saying. It could be that she was having a mental break. I see this. You know, when you watch the so-called sort of Karen videos of people mm-hmm. freaking out in a supermarket because, mm-hmm. you know, they're asked to wear a mask. Right. Or, or, you know, I got this crazy letter from someone who came into our bookstore that, uh, w- w- you know, was asked to wear a mask. It's, just, it's like mm-hmm. this person is 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 really struggling. It has nothing to do with what's happening right now. Right. This right. is the means by which this pain and trauma is being expressed. And it's wildly inappropriate and incorrect and sort of socially destructive. And all those things can be true. And this could also be a person who's under immense duress. So it doesn't undo it, but it mitigates it, right? Mm -hmm. And it it forces you to see it with a little bit more perspective and empathy. Yeah, exactly. 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 It's not yeah. a computer game. Yeah. Like this is a real person. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so much of that is lost. Like it, yes. it's, and again, it's, it's, and I'm, I'm sorry. I, like, I honestly feel like, like, could this possibly be true? Like, I can't tell you how many times I felt yeah. like when I make these comparisons to Westboro, like, is it really true? Or am I just like a, a one trick pony or something? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is this, is, am I just framing everything this way? But, but again, that idea, it's like, you know, the end justifies the means, right? Like we have to, we have this message and it's the most important thing. And therefore anything and everything that we do to preach it is justified. That was something What's, that I came to disbelieve. And, you know, when I, when I pushed back against that, um, like the, the resistance, like the idea, like how could I possibly, who was I, the self-righteous person trying to, trying to call into, you know, into question the, the motives of the servants of God, da, da, da. Like it's sorry. Go ahead. I, I you. no, no. To me, the 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 other reaction I have with with like let's say you watch an Amy Cooper video or any of these people, I try to go. Whatever I think about what this person did, right? 
Um, it's not my place or my job to punish them. This is what prosecutors are for. This is what their family is for. This is what their employer is for. The people who actually have a relationship with this person, or, or perhaps this is also what the community most directly affected by this thing. This is their job, right? My job is to watch it and go, where am I like that person, right? Mm -hmm. What have yep. I said that was offensive or not representative when I was under stress or duress, right? right. What, where have I instinctively reacted in a way that was totally ignorant of the sort of mm -hmm. potential risk that this might expose other people to, so on and so forth, right? Yeah, so exactly. I think the, and it's the that idea kind of humility, that behavior. Yes, exactly. That that kind of, and it's that kind of humility that also mitigates your desire to hurt other people, right? right? It's, it's too that's busy. what I mean. Say again. You should be too busy yeah, looking yeah. in the mirror. To, <laughs> right, to, like, exactly. Yes. I think there's a line from Confucius where, you know, they're criticized. He hears someone criticizing another philosopher. He says, ah, you must be more perfect than I am because I don't have uh, time to do this. Right. And, and I think that's sort of how I think about it. It's like, I, I don't need to, uh, I, I don't need to go after this person. La yeah. Last question for you. Cause I think this brings us back full circle. You have children of your own now, yes? I have, yeah, one one girl. She's a, how, a little girl. She's the best. How how old? Um, she is two and three quarters. And so so best. somewhat <laughs> approaching the age when the yeah. indoctrination starts for you. How are you thinking? You know, I think if we're thinking about that poem, what that poem is really about is intergener intergenerational trauma and how we pass on the sins. Uh, to our children and we perpetuate, you know, mm -hmm. uh, this stuff. So how are you thinking about both breaking the cycle and, you know, now that you have a child, mm -hmm. uh, can you, how do you think about what you expose them to, how you teach them, how you, you know, let them sort of be their own person? I've got to imagine you have an immense sensitivity to that and I, I even know like my own issues with my own parents having like my kids are now at an age where like I remember being that age. Like mm -hmm. you don't remember being two, so you're not quite there. Mm -hmm. But like at four or five, you're like, oh, I I know I remember being alive. Right. And mm -hmm. so it gives you a new lens on your own childhood because you suddenly go like, Oh, that was a horrible thing to do to a four-year-old. Like I would never, <laughs> I would never do that or whatever yeah. it is, right? Yeah. Absolutely. How how are you how are you trying to write a new chapter with your own family? Oh man, this is a this is a great question because I mean, for years before I got pregnant, I was reading parenting books because I realized that, you know, it's not enough. It's not enough to just say, I'm not going to do what they did you have to have an alternate paradigm or else you're going to go right back to exactly what you know like cuz it's in your muscle memory absolutely and and it was actually shocking to me that much harder like i would say that it was quite easy for me to change my thinking about to think differently about gay people or about jewish people or any of these people the people in these groups that we used to target like i just i started to see like very quickly like oh yeah they're they're just people you know, they're just humans, yeah. like with their own experiences. Like, and it was very easy. And again, because I had thought I was, you know, you know, going after them, quote unquote, like for their own good, like it wasn't like I've had a sense of like personal hatred 
for them or whatever. So that was easy. It was much, much harder, much harder to change my thinking about children. Like, and and maybe I'm actually not, you know, totally positive why this is. I, I would guess it's because, you know, that's essentially who I was to my family. I didn't leave the church until I was almost 27, but I was still a child to them, right? I was still a young person. I was still living at home with my mom directing my activities, you know, all day, every day, basically. So like, and and like the sense of like powerlessness, right? That they have this authority over you. And, you know, my mom would literally say like, you can sum up the Bible in three words, obey, obey, obey. Like the emphasis on, you know, obedience without question or protest and the reliance on force and control to make children do what you want. It was just so much a part of of my understanding of what the parent-child relationship meant. As loving as my parents were, that was always the, you know, like undergirding everything. And so I would listen to these parenting books about like how to like how to respond to a child when they're acting out or doing something that you think is, you know, bad or not the way that they should be acting. And like they would be <laughs> they would be advocating this kind of connection, right? This gentle, like, you know, they're, if they're throwing a fit or having a hard time, like, you know, like I hear you, like, I understand this is not an easy thing, you know, to, it's not, it's not easy to not have what you want the second that you want it or whatever, whatever, kind of like verbally affirming, like the feeling, not okaying the action, but affirming the feeling and like, yes, this is hard. Let me help you through it. Like, and I, I was absolutely shocked by like the feeling of this enormous resistance and like, no, 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 no. I'm definitely not going to be um, like enabling. I'm de- that's, that's how my family would put it. I'm definitely not going to be enabling this kind of behavior, like all that kind of stuff. And I felt that. And then I was like, oh my God, like I need to read way more books about this. I need to like retrain my brain and how I think about, I think about this because I can't, I can't do this. Like my mom would always say things like, you know, these kids don't know how good they have it. And like, you know, the implication being like she, she, and like, as I mentioned at the very beginning, she did save us from the very worst of what she experienced as a child. Um, and, and all her years growing up and, but it wasn't enough, right? It's not enough to just do better. Like, that's what I feel. I think more than anything, like this huge sense of responsibility, like this, this child, like you are their first introduction to the world and like what a good relationship looks like and how to live a good life. And I take that responsibility so seriously. And I, I would say that's my like primary job in this yeah. world. Like that that's what it feels like. More important than, you know, uh, I'm very, you know, grateful and glad to have, you know, been able to do and and to still be doing, you know, work that I believe and hope is valuable to others. But the responsibility that I feel to her is enormous. And it has been, I, I don't think I've experienced, I mean, this is, I think, by far the greatest place of growth in my life since I left. Um, yeah, so one one book I'd, I'd recommend to people, and it's probably relevant to your experience, there's a book, um, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, um, which was very helpful to me and a lot of people I know. I think it's by Dr. Uh, Gibson. Um, and anyways, the the idea being that like, uh, you know, your parents were just like two random people that met, right? <laughs> and and had all sorts of issues. And uh, 
you, when you grow up, it, as it sounds like you did, and, and a lot of people did, you, your it was your parents' emotional immaturity that that put them in the position they were in, right? Mm-hmm. That that then you were in, and you have mm-hmm. if you don't wrestle with that stuff, and we all have different issues. You know, some parents were alcoholics, some parents were. Uh, fundamentalists, some parents mm-hmm. were neglectful, whatever. But you have mm-hmm. to deal with the shit from your childhood, or you will pass it on exactly as Philip Larkin is saying. And it's not your parents' fault if that happens. It's your fault. I'm really right? sorry. You you cut out there for like oh, 10 sorry. seconds. No, no, no. You, you were no, saying no. some parents are neglectful, some parents are abusive. Yeah, some parents are neglectful, some are abusive, some are alcoholics. You know, every parent is a different issue. But if you don't deal with that, you will pass it on, as Philip mm-hmm. Larkin is saying. Yeah. And it's not your parents' fault. It's right. your fault. 100%. Absolutely. And it's that, like, you know, I when I, in the moments when it's really, really hard, right, where I have to be the most intentional about everything that I'm, like, when I'm the, the, the most triggered, you know, um, yeah. you know, those moments, like, I... I, I think about how incredibly difficult it is. And I think like, I don't want her experience of parenthood to be this, right? I want to give her the tools that like, and I think of course, parenthood is always going to be, you know, difficult in some ways, but when the, you know, I have a sister-in-law who's really wonderful. Um, she's married to my brother. So my brother was in the, obviously in the church with me and she, um, I, I, I see how she reacts to their children and even though she can be, you know, just as frustrated and just as upset, it amazes me like how she responds with such gentleness, even when she is like tired beyond belief, even when, and it's because like her understanding was built in, like from the time, you know, she was a kid, like it, it's so much easier and more like second nature to her. I want it to be second nature for my daughter. That's beautifully said. Let's uh, let's call it there, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's really nice talking to you. Thanks so much for listening. If you could leave a review for the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. The, the reviews make a difference, and of course, every nice review from a nice person helps balance out the crazy people who get triggered and angry anytime we say something they disagree with. So if you could rate this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, that would mean so much to us and it would really help the show. We appreciate it and I'll see you next episode. Guy Raz's How I Built This is a podcast where each week he talks to the founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you hear these entrepreneurs really go into their story. And Guy is an incredible interviewer. He doesn't just dance around the surface. He has real questions because he himself is an entrepreneur. He's built this huge show and this huge company. In a recent episode, they talked to the founder of Liquid Death, that crazy water company that's become this billion dollar brand. Follow the show on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This Early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. And for a deep dive in daily business content, listen to Wondery V destination for business podcasts with shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, The Best One Yet, Business Movers, and many more. Wondery means business. 
Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that just saved Abercrombie? Or the tech acquisition that was just like Game of Thrones? Or the one financial equation that can solve climate change? Then check out our daily podcast, The Best One Yet, or as we call it, T-Boy. This is Nick. This is Jack. And we pick the three most interesting business news stories every day for the perfect mix. 20 minutes each morning, you're going to feel brighter. We call it pop biz, don't we, Jack? Where pop culture meets business news. So whether you want to kick off a conversation with your buddies, or you're going for that promotion at work, or you just want to know the trends before your friends, feel brighter by starting your morning with us every weekday. Listen to the best one yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your pods. You can listen to the best one yet ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, and many more, Wondery means business. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.